welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, you guys. So I have a really special treat for you today. I've been anticipating this interview and I have been planning to have this conversation with my dear friend and spiritual companion and colleague, Perdita Finn. Her book, Take Back the Magic, has just come out and Take Back the Magic Actually, I've got like the, I don't even have the real book, the, the, the cover. I've got the, uh, I've got the, the, um, author, sort of the, whatever you call it, the advanced uncorrected proof <laughs> copy here. Take back the magic conversations with the unseen world by Perdita Finn. Perdita is the co-founder of one of my favorite communities, the way of the rose. She's been on this show before with her husband, Clark. Her daughter, Sophie Strand, you guys may have heard that interview. If you haven't, go check it out because Sophie's book just came out, The Madonna Secret. And so anyway, I am beyond, beyond excited to be bringing Perdita onto the show for a, I guarantee you, spectacular conversation about conversations with the unseen world, working with our ancestors talking with our beloved and sometimes not so beloved dead. So Perdita, welcome. I am so glad you're here. Oh, Jennifer, I just, I think one of the great joys of writing these books is I feel like the soul reunions it has given to me. And certainly one of those soul reunions has been with you. I feel so blessed to be on this journey with you and to, to have found you again. Yes. It, just, it feels like a real treasure. Thank you. Oh, right back at you, sister. Okay, so I always love to start with the beginning. I love to start with talking about what was it like for little Perdita to be a highly sensitive person? When did you realize or do you use the word empath? If you do, when did you realize you were one? Or if you don't use that word, what words do you use? But like, let's just talk about like, young, magical, curious Perdita. And then then we'll, I hope I get and, you and as my mother in my in. next life. <laughs> <laughs> because I wish that's the way I had been brought up to think of myself. And yeah. instead, I felt strange. Yes. And odd. Yes. And and out of sync. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was told I had a too overactive imagination. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Too sensitive, overreacting, making shit up, taking things too personally, just I, suck it up and get over it. You, that was my childhood. Yep. And, it, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I, my my first agent, not the agent who ended up selling the book, but my agent who retired just as I finished the book, read it and said to me, boy, you were a spooky little kid. <laughs> and I didn't feel spooky. I felt like I was in a state of mystic reverie a lot of times that was treated as being too odd for, for words. And I, you know, I feel like I'm home with you that I can admit that, yeah, you know, I yeah. was, 
my life in elementary school, I have good friends and I'm friends with still, I'm still friends with my best friend from first grade. Wow. But but I was a teased little kid. I was an oddball. Yeah. You know, and I, I would get care about things too much. Mm -hmm. I read too much. Yeah. And I had a lot of experiences I didn't know how to integrate. And I had no language for them. And I had no container for them. I grew up in an atheist family. Me too. Right there and, with you, honey. Yeah. And I, not only an atheist family, but my grandmother had been, quote, mentally ill. And mm. that pro- trying to figure out what that means, you know, she was in and out of mental hospitals having electric shock therapy. And I read her diary. And she had a miserable life and the appropriate response was anguish to the things she endured, but it stood there like, you better not be crazy. Yes. Yes. It was like a warning that I was born into. Mm. My mother was terrified Mm. of any manifestation of something that might not be normal. Yes. And so I learned to pass. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is a common story you hear from people who are empathic and sensitive, but I'm sure it, you know, for me, I, I, you know, it, it was a lot of, was learning how to hide who I was. And I feel at 61, I'm finally remembering who I was when I was seven. Yes. Well, and I will just say that in the conversations that I've had with other people, um, consistently this message of there's something wrong with you you are too much you are too weird you are too broken you are too intense you are too sensitive most like i have interviewed at this point i mean i've i've talked to i mean i've talked to hundreds and hundreds if not like hundreds of empaths and this is consistently one of the messages that we almost always get i can count on one hand the people who grew up in families where they were supported for being different where they were where their gifts were recognized and uplifted and held in a way that's different and i think that in if i think about it none of them are our generation they're younger that they you know like they're probably like women who are now maybe in their 40s or younger who had parents who could be like, oh, you're a sensitive person. That's awesome. Let's cultivate this. Let's support this. There is there is one caveat to all that that I would like to, you know, my mother was not someone who was, my mother was terrified of anything spiritual. My yeah. father was terrified of anything religious. But my mother did one thing and it was a great gift. And I it went to two things. One is she loved books about magic. And she read us. She loved the British children's book writer. Her name was Edith Nesbitt. She was a socialist and a feminist. And she wrote books about children and magic that inspired C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, J.K. Rowling. They spawned all of the children's literature we know today. And I grew up on those books. And they're filled. They're, they're really like handbooks to animism. They're always mm. about talking animals and talking stones and wishes that come true and kids who have a completely alternative experience of the world who rescue the grown-ups in their lives through those experiences. So even though my mother couldn't 
consciously acknowledge what was going on for me or validate it in any way at all, she did give me these books. And yes. they were my lifeline. Well, and as you say this, for me, because my parents were also atheists and my mother had left the church with a big chip on her shoulder because she was raised Catholic. And so she had left the Catholic church with a huge chip on her shoulder. But in a way, that kind of magical fantasy, like my mother believed in flower fairies and talked to, and had all, all of the Cicely Mary Barker books. And I grew up with this reverence for plants and love for flower fairies and the magic of the garden and the land, it was almost as this, as if that stuff existed outside of the parameter of what they thought was spirituality. And so it kind of, they could indulge that magic because it was this sort of fun, fluffy, playful thing that had no basis in reality. And yet for you and I, it formed our sense of reality. It did. And my mother reinforced it. She was an expert gardener and she was a witchy gardener and she loved animals and animals. I mean, our house was the animals were people. We had like 15 cats. We had a board constrictor and an iguana. We had dogs, hamsters, bunnies. I mean, it, it was insane. I mean, you know, and, but it was also this life energy. Yes. And it was a sense that other beings had personalities and experiences. So that was validating. And that was, I mean, I think animals are often people's lifeline and their way back into the magical. Yes. Yeah. But, But no, it was, it was not fun growing up like that. No. Well, and you and I both grew up in the same same region. We both grew up in Massachusetts at a very particular time. And I will concur that it was not an easy place to be weird. It was not an easy place to be different. You know, it just Massachusetts in the, in the, like being a school age kid in Massachusetts in the sixties and seventies, not an easy thing. Well, no, absolutely not. It was, you know, you, the preppy handbook comes right. out of that that era and that and that sort of that kind of conformity and but it's also you know it's also the home of the most famous witch trials in America for yes. a reason and yes. those were generated by Harvard and that energy is very present and um yeah you know and and my uncle was the head of psychiatry at Harvard and mm. you know you want to talk about that witch burning energy yeah that's it. Well, and oh my God, I mean, this is a whole, it's just, it's every time you and I talk, I'm blown away by the parallels in our lives. And like, just like, yep, me too. Like, it's like, we could tick all the boxes together and be like, we had such a similar experience. And as you were speaking about it, there is a quality of, it's not just about burning the witches but it's also about the condemnation of the perspective or perception of the world that is not contained within intellect and rational reason. And I also grew up with atheist family. I also grew up, my father's side of the family were like, you know, my grandfather was a a very esteemed psychiatrist and poet. 
and, um, you know, and like very connected, but there was, there's this level of kill the magic. Like there's no space for the magic. There's no room for it. There is no sense of wonder except for possibly this kind of condescending amusement of like, oh, isn't that cute that she thinks that way? Absolutely. And the killing of the magic, you know, begins with the killing of the women, right? Right. What you're doing when you kill the women is you're silencing the women you leave alive, right? Yes. And that general, in that, with that fear of you don't want to be weird, you don't want to step outside. I mean, one of the things I was really fascinated by, there's this account of the Burning Times called Witch Craze by Ann Barstow. She's a wonderful historian in her 80s now. And one of the things she documents is one of the women were often accused of talking to the dead. And so you're in your kitchen talking to your mother who you're experiencing as still present to you after she passes. And women have been doing this for tens, hundreds, a million years, thousands of years. And suddenly it's a dangerous thing to be doing, to be in conversation with the trees, the animals, the dead. And it's the it's like the great silencing. And it, mm-hmm. that silencing first happens with violence. And then by the time we come along, it happens with mockery, right? Yes, yes, yes. And dismissal, invalidation, you know, your truth doesn't, doesn't, um, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't pass a double blind study. And the truth is that I always say about the proof that the dead are real is often just for us. It never passes a double blind study. No. It's only for our own faith, our own intuition, our own hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you just brought something up. I, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was, I don't know whether it was before seminary or during seminary, but it might have been before seminary, you know, ancestor worship exists in um in so many different cultures and one of the things that i understand was that when judeo christianity was really like trying to make a stand for monotheism ancestor worship was in direct competition with the monotheistic guy in the sky and so what is the most effective way to control or to basically usurp a religion and take is like you got to remove the ancestors and you got to remove the ancestor worship if you're going if if the ancestors are in competition with the one and only god and i mean we're talking thousands of years of of making ancestor worship wrong if you start looking at you know the rise of monotheism it's like monotheism has been in direct competition with the ancestors for thousands of years now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have so many stories about that. And, but, you know, you see this Catholicism demotes the ancestors to saints. They kind of right. them in the cult of the saints. But then with the Reformation, Protestantism gets rid of the saints. Yeah, it's rid of and them. Then, and then Catholicism imitates protestantism and tries to demote the virgin demote the saints you know vatican ii got rid of a lot of the saints they said weren't real well the truth is those quote not real saints are the oldest ones of all Mm. so saint christopher is 
gotten rid of because he's not a real saint. But if you follow St. Christopher back, you know, who holds the Christ child, and a lot of people pray to St. Christopher help with their vehicles because he carries the Christ child back and forth across the river. But in the Middle Ages, he had a dog head. He was supposed to be part dog and part giant. And if you follow him back, he's Anubis from ancient Egypt. And he's the one carrying souls back and forth between life and death. Mm. And so he's, he's, he's a real ancestor and a real God in direct competition with a God on high. And people will give up their devotion to St. Christopher. Everybody wants a St. Christopher medal in their car. Right, right, right. I mean, I, I think one of the first things, I currently don't have a St. Christopher medal in my car, but I mean, for years I've had a St. Christopher medal in my car. Well, in St. Bridget, she was one of my main squeezes and has been one of the deities that I've been working with. And she is such an interesting one because she was the mother goddess of the British Isles for a very, very long time. Christianity came in. And that's the other thing is so fascinating is the way that the old gods get woven into the new religion by being turned into saints so that people's devotions can continue. But that it's sort of like, but that's a demoted deity. Therefore, the guy in the sky, you know, it's like saints have, you know, the saints are the minions of God kind of thing. Well, one of the things I'm really interested in too is how people used to become saints or even yeah. ancestor devotion. And, you know, uh, there, I was interested in a saint. Uh, her name is Saint Foy. And she was a little girl. And she was like back in 900, was killed by the Romans at age 10, or she died. I mean, she died of something, right? Mm-hmm. But she was known in life as being a very mischievous little girl. She played practical jokes on everybody in this little town. And after she was dead, she continued to show up playing practical jokes. And you'd misplace something and find a place you didn't expect. You said, oh, that was Foy. And then people started asking Foy for help. And Foy would answer them, but she always answered them like with a backhanded answer. It came at you in a way you didn't expect it and would often make you laugh when she answered your prayer. Well, people have been devoted to Foy for over a thousand years. Her town in Conk, France is a pilgrimage site. And it was a whole chapel built up, this 10-year-old little girl still answering people's prayers. But I think of friends of mine who've lost children, and I have a number of friends who've lost children. Yes. Yeah. And what if those children that were gone each had a book of miracles that parents knew that their children were still performing miracles for people in their community? Because they are. And they they could be. And they are. And if we knew that, every town would have its St. Foy. Yes. And every mother would know who'd lost a child that that child was a saint on the other side. I just was thinking, and I know we don't want to talk about politics. And, and I was just thinking, may all of the children, may all of the children who have just been massacred in all of the wars that are going on right now, but may all of the children become saints and help us out to help us to find a better way to deal with all of this. Well, I think that's one of that's been my almost my daily prayer. And that's why you're such a soul sister, because you give yeah. voice to the things that are in my heart. And that's what I've been praying. I've been praying for the children to speak and for the rest of us to listen. 
because we need to listen to the children on this side and the children on the other side. Yes. And to accept their guidance and 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 the guidance of mothers on this side and on the and other side. And the guidance of mothers on this side and the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, obviously like me, you grew up weird and you grew up strange and you got a lot of messages about would being weird and strange and you were trying to mask and fit in in Massachusetts, which in my experience, I grew up in the town I grew up in was equally preppy and towny. And so, and the tension between, and that's the thing about Massachusetts is that I think it's like people, you've got the blue bloods and the Boston, the Boston Brahmins and the preppies, but then you also have the, you know, you got the, you know, um, excuse my language, you guys, but like, you know, like what the fuck is your problem? Like, (laughs) like, the attitude and the like, you know, give me a, you know, give me a coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. Thank you very much. Like that back and forth. Massachusetts is such a weird place that way. I, um, I grew up in a, you know, I went to public high school right. I with those were my, those were my peers, but there was also a prep school in my little town. Yeah. Where the, where the rich kids went to school. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so there was this, this prep school kind of, you know, yachting energy. And then there were the yachting salesmen, uh, sailing men, and then there were the fishermen. Exactly. There were the two, you know, you were either going to grow up and go to some fancy place and get a fancy boat, or you were going to go get on a fishing trawler after college. Exactly. Yes. And interestingly, so your, your, your family, it grew up, you grew up on the South shore. My mother's side of the family is from the North shore. And my mother's family were all fishermen in Gloucester. And another place where you have these super wealthy who have all of the mansions and the beachfront properties. And then you've got all of the fishermen and the, you know, but everybody, it's such, Massachusetts is such an interesting town or place in terms of that tension. But the bottom line is whether you're talking about the intellectual preppies with their yachts and their deck shoes with no socks. <laughs> Think about all the kids in their deck shoes with no socks and their like Lacoste shirts and their and their sweaters and the whole nine yards. Um, versus like the townies, we didn't fit in on either side. Like no, yeah, I did not. And I you know I was in the theater club. That's the only that was my home. That was my tribe. I you know I hung out with the kids doing theater. Yeah, and and I you know and sort of tried to make it through and middle model my way through. So what brought you to the point where you were like, I'm going to claim my magic. And I mean, I imagine maybe it was an incremental process, but like, how did you go from being the weird kid and maybe theater was part of what did it for you, but how did you go from being the weird kid to the, no, I'm going to be the wild, magical, witchy, creative person that I am. It's a slow process because you silence yourself to fit in. Yes. Right. And that was a lot of high school for me was just trying to find a way to sort of fit in and same with college, to be perfectly honest. But after college, I became a high school teacher Mm. and I, you know, I don't write about this in the book, but I think it was, I was very interested in the teaching of writing because I wanted to recover my own writing voice. And I wanted to figure out how to heal myself and find my voice again. And I think it was, I was very healed by those adolescents that I taught. 
And I became a high school drama teacher and a high school English teacher. And it was a process for me of healing myself. And, you know, once I had, I met my husband and I became a mother, um, I stopped teaching and began becoming a writer myself. And I think that was the process of recovering my magic. And and I then I had two very magical children. And so I've tried really hard to validate their magic in the world and their specialness. And, and they're very, very sensitive, beautiful, very different, but very, very magical creatures. And and I've seen my primary job as, you know, to nourish them and protect them. I haven't always done a very good job at that. It's pretty hard in our culture. But um, I think it, it's children who are always healing. And for me, it was working with children. Mm. And so working with children, well, and as we were, you were saying, it's like if we can listen to the children, this is what's going to heal the world. And it sounds, you know, working with children for you, it's so fascinating, the connection, children, ancestors, because working with children opened your way, opened you to the magic, opened you to the possibilities as well as marrying a writer and embracing the writing, the writer within you. Sounds like that was another part of it. How do we get to that place of, let's talk about the ancestors. Let's talk about the relationship with the ancestors. Let's like, like, because this is obviously such a big part of the work you are doing. Well, one of the things that really began to happen for me, and I think when I think about kids and I think I talk about them differently is that I think I was always aware that I had more than one life. Yes. I came into this life. Yes. I did too. And I think that was a lot of my disorientation. Yes. Right. And, and like, who am I this time? Yes. Why am I here? (laughs) You know what I mean? Why this? And so I've got a question for you. Sorry. uh, That, so I'm just curious. Did you have a weird birth? Was there any like birth trauma? Any, because my theory, my birth was weird and my mother nearly died giving birth to me. And my theory is that I didn't get the erase that people get when they come in. And I came in with memory in a way that most people don't. So I I know who I was in my past life. Yes. You Here's talk about it in one of one one of the past lives that you were I, in. I know. I, I, I actually know directly who I was. Who yeah. Got nine months and forty nine days before I was born. Right. And I think for whatever why why do I why do I have so many memories of this? I didn't know what to do with them as a child. I thought I, I had an over. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of more of it than I write about in the book. But one of the things I've come with my own children was wanting to recognize what they were bringing through from the other side and to validate it. Mm. Both my children told us a lot when they were little. Mm-hmm. And anyone who reads my book will know that my parents actively suppressed what I was trying to bring through. Right. And what we wanted to do was figure out who our kids were and what they needed in this life, given what they'd had in their past lives. And I think that's my prayer for my next life. I want parents who recognize me, not like 
just for my gifts or sensitivity, but as Perdita, oh, it's Perdita. <laughs> We've got Perdita. We, we know what to do with this one. And I think that that used to be what people happened. Tyson Yunkaporta, he's this Aboriginal teacher, but this beautiful book called Sand Talk about his people talks about what it's like to live in a culture where you recognize your great-grandmother and your child. You know your child is your great-grandmother. And because of that, you know things about your child, right? And you know what they need. And it's why we also can recognize the wisdom of children, that they're bringing through a lot of wisdom from the other side. And in our culture, we want to make them fit in and behave a certain way rather than encourage these experiences, right? Like yes. I'll never forget my husband, we were took our kids to um Aikido when they were little. It's a nonviolent martial art that we do here in Woodstock. And he the kids were off at the in the dojo and my husband was sitting outside reading a book. And this little three-year-old boy came up and he pulled on Clark's sweater. And kids approach us because we know we listen to kids. And Clark says, Hi, puts his book down. And the three-year-old looks at him and says, that was my dojo. And he points at this Japanese dojo picture on the wall. And Clark said, yeah, tell me more. He said, I was the teacher. And Clark said, were you? And do you want me to tell someone that? And the little boy said, yeah. Who? Said Clark. He said, dad. And Clark said, will you take me to your dad? And the little boy said, yeah. And the class finished and Clark's looking around for the dad. And of course, it's the Aikido teacher. And Clark goes over with the little boy and says, you know, your son just told me something very interesting. He wanted you to know that he used to be the teacher at this dojo. And the man wrote Clark off, treated him like he was crazy. And the little boy had clearly gone to Clark because he couldn't get through to his father. He was trying, he, he wanted to say to his father, I chose you. So you could train me so we could get moving. And I'm sorry to say that he didn't listen. Didn't and listen. Think, and I think this happens to children everywhere. 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 And, and it's like this whole thing of like the way that you and I both know the term empire the way that empire tries to homogenize our souls into being a cog in the wheel and to fit in and to invalidate, ignore, and deny. I mean, my nephew, when he was younger, he went through a couple, a number of years where for Halloween, every single year, he dressed as a Union soldier and like was like, had like this rich fantasy life about the Civil War as a Union soldier. And yet, you know, he was raised in conventional, like, upper middle class Massachusetts, uh, you know, where it's like that, all of that creativity, all of that part of him, it was just kind of a cute story that Rather than information, he was desperately trying to communicate. Desperately trying to communicate about the, un and, and I mean, unresolved stuff for him about being a Union soldier. Like there was a story where I will never forget this. My mother told me the story that when he was maybe four, five, maybe four or five years old, he and my mother were walking in their backyard. And he was clearly remembering and in multiple timelines because 
he was talking about being back from the Civil War and walking in the backyard and seeing and walking in the family plot, the family cemetery, and said, and Mima, that's where you're buried. And my mother just was like who had given up all the magic with the relinquishing of the church at a, at, you know, at the age of 20, it was just charming. It was just cute. It was just like, oh, isn't this curious? And yet it's like, you know, you know, and, and, and we need him to activate those memories at a moment when we are poised with so much division in our country for people to have memories of why that's not a good thing are important. We come, we bring this information through because we need it. Right. Right. And we need it. Well, and, you know, one of the theories, like I've been studying Dolores Cannon and um, QHHT, quantum healing hypnosis techniques. And, you know, I've been doing work around past life regression and remembering things for a very, very long time. But one of the things that Dolores talks about, and, and I've heard in a number of places, is that we are often sort of run through the erase, the great erase before we come into this life where we get sort of a certain level of amnesia because we're not supposed to know all the rules because if we knew all the rules, we wouldn't like, it's sort of like they don't, you know, like it's not an open book test, like life. And yet it seems to me that where is the line between it's not necessarily that we come into this life with no memory as much as we get indoctrinated into society and we are we and our memories are taken from us they are that's what i invalidated think. they are ignored they are denied they are suppressed that's what i think happens and i think the thing is we come through with the things we need for this life yeah you know we're not going to remember everything and it's no. on a need to know basis right but we have experiences of joy and experiences of trauma and you know honestly those traumas aren't meant to traumatize us because we survived them here we are we've made it back ding ding they're, ding yeah we're they're here to offer us guidance going forward and they're they're experiences of wisdom and validation and also the reminder there's enough time in the world i mean i think so many mistakes are made because people don't know there's enough time. Oh my God. Well, and right now, the impending sense of urgency, because we are living within the bubble of human perspective, which Our Lady speaks a lot about. And if you guys are listening to this and you're like, who is Our Lady? Um, Clark, uh, Clark started to encounter Our Lady of Woodstock a number of years ago now, and um, and messages have come through Clark, who is Perdita's husband, who and sort of and these messages are kind of at the core of Way of the Rose, which is a whole other interview. Go back and listen to season one, I believe, back in like 2020 when this when when I interviewed Clark and Perdita, but that idea of human time human urgency and that perspective of ourselves like that there's that there's that one transmission about it's like you guys are looking at the world from the inside of a bubble and all you see is the reflection of the world like the interior reflection of that bubble as your world when that's not really accurate at all 
I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I mean, I, a question I've asked myself is, what does it mean to sober up from empire, from our oh, empire, yeah, to civilization? And we are addicted to civilization, right? You know, I'll talk yeah. about, oh, I want civilization to end, and people will go, well, antibiotics and you know, <laughs> light bulbs and uh, internet, hot, yeah, or, or and for me, you know, hot water. Yeah, electricity. Uh, Karini and I will often talk about who, um, for Diaz is a mutual friend of ours. Um, Karini and I will often talk about shoes. Like, just like being able to have your feet covered. There's a lot to be said for that. But so, what does it really mean to be, you know, Clark and I were asking yes. this question for a long time. What does it mean to sober up from empire? It feels like an impossibility inside of it. You know, we all have to make money to eat and live and we have to drive our cars and all of this, right? And I think that sobriety from empire is remembering the long story of our souls, that empire wants to convince us we only have one life to get it right. And, you know, then we're going to step on the conveyor belt and either go to heaven or hell, or if we're a Buddhist, we're going to go off to extinction. But we only have this one life. And suddenly, if we have more than one life, it undermines hierarchy and domination. So what does it mean if you're an Israeli child who's been murdered and you're reborn in Palestine or you're a Palestinian child and you're reborn in Israel? What does it mean if we really, really experience the entanglement of the long story where we've all been many, many different things, not just human beings, not just different religions and different nationalities and different races, but we've been men and women, we've been plants, we've been animals, we have multiplicities within us. We've been heroes, we've been villains. We don't know what other harm we've done. You know, we it it should it should bring us radical humility in the face of the mystery of who we are. Yes. Yes. Well and I want to go back to something like you touched on this idea of when we embrace and when we own and remember the consequences of the choices we made in other lives or the experience of other lives. Like, you know, you are, you are a union soldier or you're a Confederate soldier and you experience the horror of that. If you can remember that you're a whole, you're going to be a hell of a lot less inclined to want to support the war machine. And, you know, it's interesting in some ways how empire and the denial of our ancestors and also the denial of our multiple lives is it's just such a vehicle to keep pushing the machine forward. It is. It really, really is. And it's the way off of it. It's the way off of it because, you know, then we realize that we we're connected to each other in ways we don't even know. Yeah. You know, I often say the end result is we really remember that in one lifetime or another, we've all been each other's mothers. Yes. And lovers and, and siblings. Lo- and friends. And, yeah, every, and fathers. Yeah. And fathers, right. And, and, and murderers. That, and that we can really, you know, it's just, I think the animals know this. I think the animals, you know, I tell the story in my book of this cat that died, took on my mother's cancer and died for her. Yes. I, I hear these stories all the time of animals who do je- make gestures like this because they know. Yeah. Yeah. Their love is just beyond lifetimes. Yes. Well, I've had the experience with a few animals where they um, would develop as a condition that 
was almost like prophetic or like I would then later discover that this was an issue for me. And it does feel to me like I think animals will absolutely take a hit for us. They will mitigate things for us. They will transform things for us in this way. I am, it's funny, I will, full confession, I forgot to write down the time when we started to, when I hit record. <laughs> and I caught myself, I caught myself a little while into it. And so I'm just kind of like spitballing where we are in like exactly what time I hit the record, at, I hit record. So I don't think we're quite at that, that, you know, like 10 minutes to the top yet. But I definitely wanted to be sure to talk about um, the rock about your dad, you know, and just like, especially like, I'd love to talk about how relationships that are really contentious, divisive and challenging while people are alive can really be transformed when they're on the other side. And I'd like to talk about what about like, how do we start cultivating that relationship because I know that there are people where they're like, well, that's all fine and good for you to say, because you guys are intuitive and you guys can talk to dead people, but like, I've never talked to a dead person. So, you know, I, so I know I'm asking about two things here, I'll but I'd love together. to, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I teach a lot of workshops with this and I certainly didn't consider, don't consider myself psychic. And yet, you know, I wrote a book with a very powerful psychic and she said, yes. I'm psychic. Yes. And that was writing that book with her was awakening going, oh, that's what's been going on my whole life. And when I teach workshops with people, they go, oh, I do that. I have that. You know what I mean? Like we are yes. all psychic. We're all yes. And so the way I describe it is it's the same as making bread. You know, if you make bread, all you need is flour and water and you get a sourdough starter going and you can make bread. And the way I get a sourdough starter going, and this is why sometimes you want to like do it with friends and get some advice and learn some folklore, because just like a sourdough starter, it's not as easy as it sounds in the beginning. Give someone on the other side a job, an assignment, and start something really easy and then see what happens and say thank you if they come through for you, because almost I always they will. I gave my um, aunt and uncle, I have a, my aunt and uncle who have impeccable taste. You know that one of the things I've been praying for for quite a while was a couch. And so for our <laughs> wedding anniversary, we finally decided we were going to go to a furniture place and we were going to look. And before we walked into the place, I called on my aunt and uncle. He was an architect. She was an artist. Um, they had impeccable taste. They're a couple. And I was like, you guys... I really need to find a couch. I need your help. Please help us find a couch quickly, swiftly within this price range. 15 minutes later, we have, or 20 minutes later, we're walking out of the store with like a receipt in hand and a delivery date for when they're going to haul off our old couches and bring in our new one or new ones. And this, was, this, this is an example of super simple assignment and they exactly. delivered, they delivered, they like came through immediately. A woman in my class this is my favorite story recently. I yeah. just I love it. I said, I want you to pick something really simple. And so she's decided she needed wood chips for her garden. And for whatever reason, the garden supply stores around her were all out of wood chips. And there was a drought where she was and she was worried about her trees and her bushes and she wanted to mulch them with wood chips. You couldn't find wood chips. So she had an uncle, a beloved uncle, she loved 
and she asked him for help. And she said, bring me some wood chips. And then she thought, I should do something for him. She didn't have a photograph of him. So she went outside and found an old wood chip and brought it in and put it on her altar. And at that moment, she heard a noise of a truck. And she went and looked out the window from her living room. And there's this giant truck pulling into her neighbor's yard full of wood chips. And she ran outside. She couldn't believe it. She said, what are you doing? She said, he said, I'm delivering wood chips for your neighbor. She said, I need wood chips. He said, you want my car? And it was that fast. And it was, it, 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 it almost terrified her how fast it was. And it was after that, she said, now I'm putting him on my love life and getting me a day. <laughs> and the games have begun for her. And so what I tell people is you build faith slowly. And you start with ancestors you love, the dead you love on the other side. And they don't even have to be family members. They can be teachers. They can be pets. They can be neighbors. They can be friends. They can be celebrities. I mean, there are RBG is somebody who has been called in many a way of the world. She's a saint. She's a saint. I call it Elvis because Elvis has the same genetic disorder both my children suffer from. So I call on him every day to protect their bodies. Mm. Love me tender. Love me sweet. Had that. The theory is, well, I could go on and on about that. Yeah, yeah. It's I a connective tissue, that he had right. a connective tissue disorder, which is why he died and also why his daughter died. I, I will just say, I am amazed at the number of people I know who have um, Ehlers-Danlos. It's like, I know a disproportionate number of people, a, uh-huh. a disproportionate number of people with it. And um, either it's a lot more common than we think, or it's it it tends to hit us fey people. I've wondered about that. Yeah. I have wondered about that. I mean, there's, I don't know whether you've ever looked into, and this is a whole other rabbit hole, but the MTHFR gene mutation and oh, the connection. We're going to have this conversation afterwards. Yes. I, yes. Otherwise we'll derail it. We will go. We, yes. And we want to we'll be talking about the ancestors, but yeah, you guys, if you're wondering what we're talking about, look up MTHFR gene mutation. Okay. And I promise I'll find somebody to have a conversation with about this and do a podcast episode on this because you need to know more about MTHFR. You do. Anyway. You do. Yeah. So back to the difficult death. Back to the difficult my death. My father. Yes. So my father was not the first person on the other side I ever asked for help with because yeah. my father was not someone you could ask for anything in life. I mean, and I talk about that in my book, which was he was somebody, if I called to ask for something, he'd say no. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, he just was not generous. He was upset. He was complicated. He was impossible. And, but I experienced him showing up to help me in a moment of crisis, which I write about in the book, which is when my daughter got sick with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and the MTHFR gene. And I would have in the past have called him for his advice medically, but I reached out to him because he was dead and said, I need help. Find me to the person who can guide me. And what happened was that I was at the gym and I was crying about my sick child. And this woman came up, this old woman, a friend of mine, and said, you need to go see the psychic. And I was like, oh, I hate Woodstock. I need a doctor, not a psychic. But we were done with the doctors. They had no answers for us. And so I ended up going to this psychic, this extraordinary woman. And my father was there. And my father showed up and my father said, this is the person who's going to help you. Mm. We called and asked for help. 
this is who's going to help you. And that was the beginning of my father and I reconnecting. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I tell the story about, for me, what I learned from my father is he has been on the other side, very much still himself, his irascible, impatient, multidimensional self. But his perspective has so changed, Jennifer. He sees with the eyes of the dead now. And those eyes are loving and generous. And he wants to make amends. I mean, I'm going to tell you a story. So I don't tell the story in my book. And so for listeners, I don't want to repeat all the stories in my book. I'm going to tell a story that's not in my book, which is I don't, I leave my brother and sister out of this book. They can tell their own stories about my impossible parents. But my sister really got the worst end of the stick with my parents. And her life has been hard and uh, with bad luck and bad choices. And this past spring, she ended up on dialysis. And I was really upset about it. And I went to my parents and I said, you got to fix this. I don't know how you can fix the fact this, you know, you just didn't take care of her in life. You didn't give her faith. You You deprived her of sweetness. Yeah. And I put a bowl of water in front of a picture of my parents. And I said, I don't know how you can fix her kidneys. And my sister is really, you know, she's on, she's not getting off of dialysis, not getting kidney. She's not a candidate for kidney transplant or anything. This is not looking good. Jennifer, yesterday they cut my sister back to two days a week on dialysis. And they may cut back to one day a week. Goodness. That never happens. Never happens. The doctor told her it was a miracle. Yeah. Her kidneys are beginning to function again. Oh. And so I'm telling you the story from my parents. And here's the bigger miracle. My sister, who does no interest in anything spiritual, about two months ago said, Perdita, would you pray about my kidneys? So I was the first person she called to tell this. And she said, I think your prayers are working. So, you know, here's the choice. We can live in that world where we accept the mockery that the magic isn't real. It's not scientific. It's not really happening. You're making it all up. It's all in your head. You have an out of control imagination. Or we can take the magic back. We can we can create healing. We can experience love. We can have joy back in our lives. We can experience just the joy of intimacy and friendship again. And I know what I'm choosing and I know what you choose. You just literally, I mean, this brought tears to my eyes. I just, I I let that message just wash over me. It is so important. We have, and, and it is so imperative right now. We must take back the magic. We must take back the magic. And the other message that I take from, from you and I also take from my own personal experience is that even a relationship that is incredibly challenging with a parent during life can be repaired. My father suffered from a severe frontal lobe brain injury as a four-year-old boy that deeply impacted the way he could relate. And language, his language center was one of the things that was the most compromised, which means having a super verbal child like me was just utterly confusing. And so he and I could never communicate effectively, and he could never, ever express his love for us in a way other than acts of service because of the the vagaries of his human existence. But our relationship 
has improved like a hundredfold since he crossed over because he is no longer, not only he has the perspective of the dead, but he is no longer inhibited by a frontal lobe brain injury that prevented him from being who he was. And my father was someone, you know, my father grew up an immigrant's child. You know, he hated the Catholic Church. He experienced tremendous violence and shame at the hands of it. And he thought he was protecting us from the Catholic Church, which, by the way, he was. Yeah, my mom did the exact same thing. Exact <laughs> same way, thing. Thank yes. you. Yes. But he didn't know there was this other option. He didn't know there was this option, which was to leave monotheism and empire behind and be in conversation with the natural world, which he loved, the animals, which he loved. That the devotion was, you know, he was de- he was a devoted nature guy. He, I mean, he went out, he just loved to be outdoors and whatever. And he died with his arms around his dog. You know, that's all he needed. That's all he needed. Oh, pretty. Now we are at that time where I say the thing. <laughs> I can, And I, I, I mean, you and I could talk and talk and talk and talk. And one of these days we are going to be in the physical, in the same geographic location. It's happening this summer. I'm making yeah, it happen. Yeah. Big pot of tea, big conversation. We'll make it happen. Okay, so in this last bit of time, there are the three things. The first one is, what else? What would you kick yourself? Or will your dad like come back and say, you didn't say this later, or your mom. But what do you or the ancestors need to say that we haven't said yet? Oh, Jennifer, I, I feel like you cover so much. I mean, like I would talk to you for, I mean, I guess... I guess I have to make a vow here, but I'm hearing my father say is you make a vow to go see that woman. (laughs) And so what I have to do is I really feel um, we've done more of these conversations. So what I want to say is the people listening is have these conversations with your friends and let's have more of them. Let's the way we're going to take back the magic is together. The way we are going to take back the magic is together. And I want to make a plug for, um, we're going to do time travel and talk about Perdita, how to find Perdita. But before we do that, I just want to make a plug for the community that Perdita and I are both part of, the Way of the Rose, because this is a place where we are gathering every day to pray together and to honor the forgotten earth wisdom of Our Lady by any name you choose to call her. And we are taking back the magic, one little prayer, one little bead at a time. And if you guys are interested in being part of a community that really is all about taking back the magic, come on over to wayoftherose.org, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we're going to do the time travel. So I, and I always like to explain how this works. I believe podcasts exist in perpetuity outside of time that they sit on a server and they are listened to for years and years and years and years, that this will be rippling forward for hopefully decades to come. People will be listening to this. I also believe that like a stone, that the broadcast is like dropped like a stone in the river of time, it ripples both ways. And so not only are we sending a broadcast forward for a very long time, we are sending a broadcast back for a very long time. We are folding the fabric of time and the river of time on top of itself. And we are landing on a very precise moment, a very precise coordinate that you are defining. And you and I are going back there 
And what we are doing is we are bringing a message to young Perdita who needs a lifeline from us. And so what we are doing is we're going to go back and we're going to tell her what she needs to hear. So my question to you is, where are we going? When are we going? Who is the Perdita we're sending a message back to? And what exactly are you telling her? And this is not, I would tell her, but I want you to speak directly to her because we are time traveling and we are going back there. There's a little girl and she's sitting on her bed and she's looking out the window and she's, you are filled with dreams and filled with stories. And there's stories. You are a time traveler. You have seen things. And I want you to hold on to what you're seeing and to tell other people what you're seeing and remembering because it matters so much. Draw it, paint it, write it, speak it, but don't hold it in. Draw it, paint it, write it, speak it, and don't hold it in. Let it, let it out there. It out. You are filled with dreams and stories. Draw them, speak them, write them. Oh, and I would like to say to little Perdita, even though your parents cannot express their love to you right now, they love you and your relationship with both of them will eventually find its way. You are loved. You are perfect exactly as you are. We need you in your creative, weird, quirky, wonderfulness. You are magical, and that is why you are here. Keep being who you are. To say something that I'm feeling very deeply, and I'm, I'm going to be a little embarrassed by, but I think I it's a safe space to say it, which is, so I've been on a journey writing this book and bringing this through, but I often write about our mothers from other lives who show up to give us what we need in all different kinds of ways. And I feel like this moment with you today, Jennifer, has been one of those moments where I feel like you've arrived to remind me of a kind of love I'd forgotten was possible. Thank you. Ah, you are so welcome. I know you and I go back. I mean, the moment that we saw each other, it's like, oh, hi. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've definitely been in convents together. I know that. Oh, I didn't have a good time in those convents. (laughs) Oh, the friend? No. Well, one of my favorite convents was the French, the French convents where the gardens the gardens, like I just spending all the time in the gardens in the French convents. Anyway, last question. How do people get in touch with you? There are lots of ways. I'm very accessible. You I are. Am on, I am on social media as Perdita Finn on Instagram and Facebook, Perdita Finn. And I have a substat that's a very lively and free where I'm always writing my new books and you can come and participate in that. And that is Take Back the Magic on Substack, Perdita Finn on Substack. And, you know, I have, I also have a website, takebackthemagic.com, and I teach workshops and I talk and it's got all my, you know, interviews and this interview will be up there. And then there's Way of the Rose, which I, you know, which is belongs to everyone. There are a lot of Way of the Rose where people are praying together. And at every Way of the Rose circle, um, we pray the rosary, but not as Christians or even not as Catholics, right? just in devotion to the mama by any name you want to call her. And we always call on the dead. And that's very powerful. And you will definitely meet uh, Jennifer's father at one of those meetings, yeah. one of our Way of the Rose Saints. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who, has, who has 
decided to volunteer himself to help other people clean, clean, to help other people straighten and clean and deal with all the other things. And um, I don't know if you guys, one of his best skills is scouring pots and pans. <laughs> oh, oh, he's patron saint of scouring. <laughs> patron saint of scouring. I, he has never, and, and he's helped us a great deal in our household with our dishes, just saying, because I he never, John never, never met a pot, a dirty pot that he didn't love. I love scouring. So I feel very connected to your father. I think, I don't know what it is. I love scrubbing pots. and. So I feel very connected to him now in a whole new way. Yes, <laughs> I think yes. Of him every time. Yes, uh, when I am really like oh, I don't want to deal with the dishes, I call on him. So and he just because he just loved to do dishes. It was just one of his little weird quirks. Um, and if you guys want to catch Perdita, she is very incredibly accessible. That you know, I met her online. We have yet to meet each other in person, but she is just such an accessible person. Come on over to one of the meetings. Perdita has been hosting the Thursday night 8 p.m. meeting. Um, and you know, if you know, come join us on Zoom. Come on over. And Jennifer, are you hosting you're hosting a meeting. I host a Tuesday night meeting. Just, yes, I'm gonna be hosting a meeting. And as a matter of fact, I'm gonna be hosting a meeting in about an hour and a half. Um and so yeah. and and anyone can host our meetings and and they're very they're they're I think there's some of the most intimate soul-sustaining circles I've ever been part of. I, I agree. I've been part of, I've been at a lot of different kinds of gatherings. I've been to a lot of spiritual events and spiritual retreats. And this is where the juice really is. Like this is where this, there's just so much, so much soulfulness in this community. It's spectacular. Well, Perdita, I know that um, we have been talking Perhaps we've gone over time, but like I said, I completely got so enraptured by the conversation, I forgot to write down the time. And so I, you know, I know we are at that point. Thank you so much for being so real, for sharing your story, for just, and for going on this amazing, magical ride with me, where we got to talk to the ancestors and talk about children and talk about past lives and talk about being weird children in Massachusetts. This has just been so rich. Thank you so much. Oh, Jennifer, this is, this has been, this has been an answer to a prayer lifetimes. You are an answer to a prayer. Thank you. Ah, thank you. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.